Thank you, brother. Okay, well, we are going to hopefully complete uh, this portion of our study um, on the people of God. And we're going to, once again, begin with 1 Peter 2, 9 and 10. And Forrest, I'm going to start over here if you'll read that for us. 1 Peter 2, 9 through 10. But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received Thank you, brother. <clears throat> okay, well, over the last uh, several weeks, we've been looking at the church as the people of God, and we've been doing so from the perspective of biblical theology. Specifically, we've considered the people of God as God's assembly, called out and assembled to worship Him at Mount Sinai and in Jerusalem in the Old Covenant, and at Mount Zion, the heavenly Jerusalem, according to the New Covenant. We've also seen the church as God's dwelling, as God dwelt in the tabernacle and the temple in the midst of his people in the Old Covenant. The New Covenant reality is that in the Incarnation, God himself has tabernacled among us in the tent of human flesh. And as he promised upon his ascension, he sent his Holy Spirit, who now dwells in his people, who are the New Covenant temple, which is his building, which he's building together with living stones to be his holy dwelling. <clears throat> and then last week, we began to discuss the people of God as God's chosen, and we spent our time considering God's mission in the calling of Abraham, that through him all of the families of the earth would be blessed, Genesis 12, 1-3. And then we traced that theme... <clears throat> through many Old Testament passages showing God's intention to reveal His glory <clears throat> in His goodness and in His power in Israel, that all the nations would hear and see and know that Yahweh is God and through faith then receive the blessings of God. Now, we also discussed the failure of Israel to fulfill their calling because of their disobedience and idolatry rather than being the recipients of God's covenant blessings and being a distinct people through whom the blessings would come to the nations they came under the covenant curse they were warned through successive judgments ultimately leading to the destruction of the temple and exile from the land and even after their return they remained under foreign rule, and right down to the time of Jesus, they had not only a corrupt worship, but prideful contempt for the nations who should have been blessed through them. But the mission of God, for which He called Abraham and chose him, that through him all the families of the earth would be blessed, would be carried out by a people whom Jesus said would produce its fruit, that is, the remnant of Israel in that day were called out, starting with the apostles and through their new covenant ministry as the gospel was proclaimed beginning in Jerusalem and in Judea and Samaria. And now even to this day, the gospel is going out to the ends of the earth to bring the declaration of blessings to every family of the earth. So this was God's ultimate purpose in calling one man out of the nations, that through him God would bless all of the nations. But to achieve this purpose, this mission of God, he chose to set apart one man and one family to be a distinct people, to worship him, to reveal his law, to dwell among them, in order that the nations would see and hear, according to Psalm 67 and 1 Kings 8, and that through this people would come the promised seed, according to Galatians 3.16, <clears throat> who is Jesus Christ, by whom and through whom come every blessing, Ephesians 
in whom every promise is yes and amen, 2 Corinthians 1, 20-21, who would restore Jacob, we're told, in Isaiah 49, 4 and 5, and he would be a light to the Gentiles, and in whom all who have faith, whatever their ethnicity, are sons and daughters of Abraham, and more than that, sons and daughters of God, according to Galatians 3. So Israel's separation was ultimately to bring forth Christ, in whom would be the integration of Pantatan ethne, all the nations. And we're told that they were chosen not only to be a distinct people for the purpose of fulfilling God's mission, but they were also to be God's treasured possession. The question is, why were they chosen? What was the basis of God's choosing? Is it because of some national superiority that they possessed? Were there some characteristics that they possessed in distinction from all others? Is it because they are somehow a people most fit to fulfill his mission? Well, the Bible tells us that God chose his people to be his own possession simply out of love. It is the pure grace of God, the goodwill of God, that moves him in mercy to take a people to himself to be his own. Simply put, the Lord has set his love on his people and he has freely chosen to bless them. Now, many people consider the doctrine of election, the idea that God chooses people to be his as a source of spiritual pride, at least potentially. But when we understand that the choosing is not of anything in ourselves, but purely of his own mercy and love, we realize there is no cause for pride, but only for gratitude and wonder. We see this in 1 Corinthians 1, 26-31, where Paul shows us that considering our election should produce in us a deep humility. Can you read that for us, Desmond? Thank you, brother. So God's choosing is to the end that his glory would be magnified and that there would be no room for boasting. So it says he chooses what is foolish, he chooses what is weak, what is low and despised, even that which is nothing. It's not due to any inherent virtue in us, but it's because of him alone, it says, that you are in Christ Jesus, who is for us the fullness of gospel blessings, wisdom from God, righteousness, sanctification, and redemption, that the one who boasts would boast only in the Lord. So it's not for anything in us, but only because of his wonderful grace that he chooses. And this fact is true also of his choosing of Israel. In Deuteronomy 7, verses 6 to 8, there's this amazing passage that describes the condescending, glorious love of God for Israel. Brother, can you read that for us? Thank you, brother. So what does it say here? What is the purpose? Why is it that God loves you? He says, not because you are more in number, 
that he set his love upon you, so why then was it? He simply says, the Lord has set his love upon you because he loves you. This is a sheer tautology. His, he loves you because he loves you. There's, I mean, that's, that's the full explanation of it. Um, it is the free, sovereign love of God that is the only explanation for why he loves and chooses his people. It is his sovereign goodness and mercy. So God speaks of Israel in the Old Testament as his son. In Exodus 4, verses 22 to 23, he tells Moses to tell Pharaoh to go to him and say, Let my son go that he may serve me. Can you read that for us? Okay, not only that, uh, God speaks of Israel as his beloved. Um, He uses pet names for Israel. He calls her Jeshrun, which means the upright. That's kind of a pet name for Israel. The prophet Hosea tells us about the love of God for Israel as an adulterous wife, and yet God's love continues to pursue her. In Hosea chapter 11 shows also God speaking of Israel as his little son whom the Lord taught to walk and he held him by the hand and he led him in kindness and he bent down and fed him. In Ezekiel 16, Israel's portrayed as a discarded newborn baby girl left by the side of the road whose cord has not been cut and she hasn't been washed and the Lord comes and sees the child and rescues it and he takes her in and cleans her up and clothes her and cares for her and raises her and as she grows into a beautiful woman it says and the Lord marries her this is a description of the Lord's love for Israel God chooses his people and he speaks of his people as his chosen his son his beloved his bride and he also says that they are his treasured possession so They are God's people called to be His so that through Him God can show the glory of His grace. Uh, Likewise, in 1 Peter 2.9, we see that we are chosen that we might show forth the excellencies of Him who called us out of darkness into His wonderful light. God's people are chosen purely out of His goodness and grace, but we are called to serve Him and to make His glory known. We are His sons, and it is the fact of our sonship that grounds our service. It's never the other way around. We don't serve that we might be sons, but because we are sons, we serve. And that's what Peter is really getting at and reminding the people in First Peter. Pretty much the whole, the whole letter is focused on that. That's why he spends so much effort reminding these people who were facing persecution of the wonder of their status as God's chosen people. It was so that they would understand their status and identity, and that from that understanding, they would be willing to serve one another, they'd be willing to endure suffering for the gospel, that they would be willing to humble themselves under God's mighty hand, knowing that in due time, God would exalt them. So it is because of our status as God's people, our union with Christ, our promised inheritance, which can never perish, spoil or fade, that we then are ready to humble ourselves in grateful service. So as God's people, we're called to God's mission. We're called to be God's own possession, a holy nation separated from the wickedness of an idolatrous world, set apart, pure, for the fellowship with a holy God, And this call to holiness and distinctness is in order that we would manifest the reality of the work of God's grace. Deuteronomy 12, 29-32 shows the necessity of this distinctness 
of God's people for the effectiveness of their service and of their uh, witness as well. Mike, can you read that for us? Thank you, brother. So they're called to be distinct. They're to be utterly different than the nations around them. The witness of God's people depends on that distinctiveness. For us, in our effort to reach others as we live among them in a fallen world, we cannot compromise our distinct calling by conforming to the world because there is no witness without this kind of separation and distinctness. Well, we've been talking about the claim of God's choosing. Now I want to consider the vindication of God's choosing. God vindicates His calling of Israel in the judgment that He pours out on Israel for their apostasy in violating the covenant. God speaks of the calling of the covenant, but He also speaks of the vengeance of the covenant. In Leviticus 26... God lays out various stipulations of the covenant and He declares blessings that would come upon them if they are faithful, but then He warns them of the judgment that will come if they break the covenant. And in successive stages, it says He will turn His face against them and visit judgment upon them, as we read in verse 25. Eli, can you read that for us? Okay, and then further in verses 31 to 33, David. And further still in verses 38 to 39, Joe. Okay, so we see this vengeance of the covenant, the closeness of the old covenant people of God to Him, becomes the very ground for severe judgment if they are unfaithful to that covenant. If Israel is the wife of the Lord, then the adulterous wife must be stoned according to Ezekiel 16:38 to 40. Jenna Okay. Also, if Israel is the son of the Lord, as it says in Hosea 11, and the son is rebellious, then the rebellious son must be cast out, and it says Assyria will be their king in verse 5. Further, if Israel is God's pleasant vineyard, as it speaks of in Isaiah 5, 3-7, then in judgment that vineyard will be laid waste, the planted vine will be uprooted and burned, according to Ezekiel 19, 10 to 14. 
can you read this? Yes, I'm sorry. Okay, thank you. And Marilyn, if you can uh, read Ezekiel 19. Okay, okay, I had an extra verse here, sorry. Um, okay, then, um, also, as we discussed last week, if the glory of God and His presence had been pleased to dwell in the midst of the people in the temple, then their abominations would drive the Lord far from His sanctuary, according to Ezekiel 8.6. His glory would rise up and leave the temple and depart to the east, and Ichabod would be pronounced, the glory has departed. And those who were the people of God, according to Hosea 1, would now be said to be no people. Those who were Ami, my people, now become Lo Ami, not my people. Those who had known mercy, Ruhama, would now become Lo Ruhama. Lord would have no mercy upon them. His judgment will vindicate His holy name against their hypocrisy, their rebellion and idolatry. His name would be holy and He would show Himself holy against them if they would not be holy in covenant with Him. But not only does God judge Israel, God will bless the nations in Israel's judgment. And we can see an irony here. God called Israel to be a blessing to the nations, but because of Israel's disobedience, she doesn't fulfill her calling to be a blessing to the nations. But Israel's failure doesn't prevent God from blessing the nations. No, God has a purpose. He has a mission. And the people of Israel are going to be used, in spite of themselves, to bless the nations. If they won't be obedient to the blessing of the nations, then the nations will be called in for judgment against Israel. And we should note here that this idea is very much in keeping with how God had used Israel in the past as well. You remember the confirming of the covenant in, with, with Abraham in Genesis 15. God told Abraham that it would be four more centuries before his descendants would come to take possession of the land and that they would be slaves in Egypt until that time. Now, does anybody remember what God said was the reason for that long delay? That 400 years? Okay. He says, For the sins of the Amorites were not yet complete. In Genesis 15, 13-16. Kathy, can you read that for us? Then the Lord said to Abram, 
Know for certain that your offspring will be sojourners in a land that is not theirs, and will be servants there, and they will be afflicted for four hundred years. But I will bring judgment on the nation that they serve, and afterward they shall come out with great possessions. As for you, you shall go to your fathers in peace. You shall be buried in a good old age. And they shall come back here in the fourth generation, for the iniquity of the Amorites is not yet Okay, so God's purposes are manifold, and when he swore to Abraham to grant this great blessing to his descendants, he said two things had to first take place. The Israelites would become slaves in Egypt, and the Amorites would be allowed to continue in their idolatry until the time that God was ready to bring his full judgment upon them for their sin. And then when their sin was complete... God's judgment came upon the Amorites, but when it came upon them, it would come in the form of their destruction at the hand of Israel. And for Israel, this would be in fulfillment of the blessings that God had promised to Abraham. They would be taking possession of the promised land through this judgment. In other words, Israel was blessed in the very same act which was the judgment and destruction of the Amorites. And now, centuries after, after many centuries of their own rebellion and sin, and of failing to be a calling, failing in their calling to bless the nations, God's judgment would now come down upon Israel, and they would be cast out of the land. And in the process of judging Israel, the nations would know the blessing of God. And we see this in various ways. In one place, we see it is with the uh, widow of Zarephath, who was in the region of Sidon. And we read in 1 Kings 17 and 8 that the prophet Elijah had been sent into exile due to the drought and famine that was brought on the land because of Israel's idolatry. And so Israel is suffering this famine and Um, You remember the story Ahab and Jezebel had instituted Baal worship and had led Israel into that gross sin of idolatry. And Elijah prayed for judgment upon the land in the withholding of the rain. And for three and a half years there was no rain. And so with the resultant famine, he goes to Zarephath where the Lord promised to sustain him with food by means of of a poor widow, and when he arrives there, she is about to make her last meal with her last food to have with her son, and then prepare to die. But God blesses her through Elijah, providing sufficient flour and oil for all of them until God would again send rain. The prophet at that time even raised the woman's son from the dead when he had died of an illness. So together they beheld the Lord's kindness and power on their behalf, and they were recipients of His blessings due to the judgment that He had brought upon Israel. And you remember Jesus refers to this incident in Luke 4, at the beginning of His ministry in Galilee, when He came to Nazareth, He went into the synagogue and began to teach. He was given the scroll to read. He read from Isaiah 61 which summed up the Messiah's mission, and he declared that it was fulfilled that day in their hearing. Now in the narrative then, Jesus anticipates the people's challenges to his authority, which were stemming from their unbelief, and he declares among them that no true prophet is honored among his own people. And then he cites this case of Elijah and the widow of Zarephath in the days of Israel's unbelief and rebellion. And in verses 25 and 26 of Luke 4, he says this, But in truth I tell you, there were many widows in Israel in the days of Elijah, when the heavens were shut up three years and six months, and a great famine came over all the land. And Elijah was sent to none of them, but only to Zarephath in the land of Sidon, to a woman who was a widow. Okay, so... In those days, there were many Israelites suffering due to the judgment 
upon their sin and the sin of their leaders. There were lots of widows in Israel, but the blessing went to a Gentile. The blessing was driven out of Israel, if you will, because of their disobedience, and it was brought to the nations. Jesus goes on in verse 27 and speaks of the blessing that went to Naaman the Syrian, who suffered from leprosy. Rachel, can you read that for us? Okay, thank you. Okay, now think about the implications of this. We're talking about Syria here. Syria was no more a friend to Israel at that time than it is now. They had been at war for years, and as Syria grew stronger, they became Israel's most troublesome enemy. Being on the northern border of Israel, there were ongoing border disputes. The Syrians were conducting periodic raids into Israel and they would carry off booty and carry off those whom they captured as slaves. And who remembers what was Naaman's occupation? He was the general of the armies of Syria. And he was a com- as the commander in charge of this scourge upon Israel, he was responsible for much destruction and suffering in Israel. But it's very interesting how the scriptures speak of him. In 2 Kings 5, 1-3, we read this. Can you read for us, brother? Okay, thank you, brother. Now, there are several things to note here. First, it says that Naaman was a mighty man of valor, and he was held in high favor by his king. And why was that? It was because by him, the Lord had given Syria victory. Yes, the Lord, Yahweh, had given victory to Syria. The hand of the Lord was with Naaman, And with the armies of Syria, giving victory to Syria, even against his people Israel. Now, why would the Lord be giving victory to the enemies of Israel, his own people? It was because he was bringing judgment on them for their ongoing rebellion and idolatry. Ahab's idolatry and Baal worship then continued through his Son's short reign and the kings after him also led Israel into sin. And so now Israel was feeling the judgment of God for these things. And Syria, and Naaman in particular, was the instrument of his judgment. But you see, in the process of judging Israel, God's blessing was coming to Naaman and coming to Syria. And verse verse 2 here says, Naaman, on one of his raids, had taken captive a little Israelite girl to serve his wife. And apparently, this young girl cared enough for Naaman to seek his welfare that he might know the healing power of Yahweh and be cleansed of his leprosy. Here is a brief picture of one little girl who acted according to God's calling and mission for his people. She wanted Yahweh's glory to be known and wanted the blessings of God to reach all the families of the earth even this family that had taken her captive. So she told them that there was a prophet of Yahweh in Israel who could heal him of his leprosy. So Naaman goes with the support of the king of Syria and with a large amount of gold and silver and clothing, and he goes to the king of Israel with a letter from the king of Syria which said, I have sent Naaman to you that you would heal him of his leprosy. So... The king of Israel sees this letter and views it as a a provocation from the king of Syria. After all, what could the king of Israel do to heal 
leprosy. And so in contrast to the little girl, he apparently had no intention to seek to help Naaman, and he probably had no faith that the Lord would or could heal him. So what the story tells us is that the king tore his royal robes in his distress, perhaps thinking that a national crisis might be at hand if the king of Syria were now trying to pick a fight directly with him. But Elijah hears of this incident, and he sends a message to the king which says, Why have you torn your clothes? Send Naaman to me. Uh, So here, even though the rebellious king may not have liked it, Elijah wanted it to be known that there was a prophet in Israel as well. So Naaman goes down to the prophet's house. And now, of course, as the commander of the Syrian army, Naaman was used to being treated with the utmost respect and consideration. But when he comes to the prophet, Elisha won't even come out of his house to see him, but he sends his servant out to tell him to go 40 miles away to the, to the Jordan River and dip himself seven times in the muddy water of the Jordan. Well, after Naaman's initial offense and objections, he does so. He goes to the Jordan, he dips himself seven times, and he's healed. And he goes back to Elijah, seeking to compensate him out of his gratitude. <clears throat> but this is the great blessing that Naaman received, not just his healing, but in verse 15, this Syrian commander confesses, quote, Behold, I know that there is no God in all the earth, but in Israel. And in verse 17 of Second Kings 5, he says, Please let there be given to your servant two mule loads of earth, and from now on, your servant... Now on your servant will not offer burnt offerings to sacrifice to any other God but the Lord. So the implication of this being that he wanted to build an altar to the Lord on soil taken from the land of Israel. So this Gentile commander is converted to the worship of the one true God, not from seeing his great blessings upon Israel and God's kindness and favor upon them because of their obedience to the covenant, rather His conversion and his blessing came as a result of God's being with him against the Israelites in judgment of their idolatry and rebellion. And then further to emphasize Israel's apostasy, after Naaman had left to return home, the servant of the prophet Elisha, who had just seen God's kindness and power to bless this man, went after Naaman and lied to him in order to get some of the wealth that he had brought to give to the prophet, who, by the way, had had refused it. Now, because of this, Elisha cursed the servant with leprosy for his deception and greed. So the Gentile commander went home cleansed of his leprosy, worshipping Yahweh, and in Israel, leprosy had come upon the servant of the prophet for his selfishness and greed. And all of this happened in the process of judging Israel for its apostasy. Elijah himself knew that the Syrian army would continue to devastate Israel, as we read in 2 Kings 8, verses 10 to 12. Jonathan, can you read that for us? Okay, thank you, Jonathan. Now, jumping ahead eight and a half centuries or so to the synagogue in Nazareth, as Jesus reminded his hearers of these stories, where the only widow who was miraculously fed and the only leper who was miraculously healed were Gentiles, it's interesting to see the response that he received after saying these things. 
in essence, from his reading of Isaiah 61, of his revelation, of its fulfillment, and of his exhortation, he had said to them, I am the Messiah who was to come. But I will not be accepted by my own people. My message and my ministry will be rejected in unbelief. I come to my own, but my own receive me not. Just as in the days of Elijah and Elisha, he says, your unbelief will result in the blessings that you should have received bypassing you and going to the Gentiles, to the nations who should have been blessed through you, through your faithfulness. And so the nations will see and hear of my glory and receive the blessings and that, that were promised to the people of faith. And so, after Jesus had revealed these things, what do the people do? Do they repent and believe? No. We read in verses 28 and 30, just the opposite. Can you read that for us, brother? Okay, so their reaction was, uh, as he said at another time, just like their father's unbelief, rejection in this case, ready to kill him because of what he had said. Well, not only was the Lord with Naaman in blessing, in bringing victory to Syria and judgment upon rebellious Israel, but as Israel continued in their sin... God determined to bring blessing to another nation through another prophet. But this prophet was as reluctant as Israel had ever been to fulfill the calling to be a blessing to the nations. And of course, I'm talking about the prophet Jonah. In this case, it would not be Syria, but Assyria, who would receive the blessings. This nation to the east of Syria had been a significant enemy of Israel in the past. For instance, we know that in the time of Elijah, Israel had been part of a coalition along with Syria and others to resist the expansion of Assyria into their territories. Eventually, the coalition failed. And we know that in 841 BC, Jehu, the king of Israel, paid tribute to the king of Assyria, Shalmaneser III. And uh, it's interesting, there's an obelisk dating to this time in the British Museum in London, showing this Israelite king bowing down, paying homage to this, this Assyrian king. Now, while Assyria had weakened somewhat in the intervening time since then, it was soon to become Israel's greatest threat. And God called his prophet Jonah to go to Nineveh, the capital city of the Assyrian kingdom, which we read in Jonah 1 Verses 1 to 2. Amanda, can you read that for us? Okay. So God calls him to go and preach to Nineveh, Nineveh against their great evil. And we know that God's purpose was to bring about their repentance. And you remember, Jonah takes a ship in the opposite direction. And why does he do this? Because he knows that Nineveh is the enemy of Israel and he doesn't want to preach repentance to them. And consider his actions here. He not only runs away, but when he, he gets on the ship and he's content to go down into the hull of the ship and sleep there, even sleeping through a tremendous, terrible storm which had the rest of the people on the ship frightened for their lives. But why was, why was he so calm and, and at peace? Well, I don't know. I guess he figures it's all taken care of at this point. He's not going to go to Nineveh. The Ninevites won't hear the message of repentance. God has said in 40 days Nineveh will be destroyed, so they won't be hearing the message, they won't repent, and they'll be destroyed. So all Jonah has to do is sort of stay out of commission for a while, and everything's taken care of. Um, Nineveh will be wiped out, and Israel won't be threatened by them anymore. 
he's even willing to be thrown into the sea and be killed, he thinks that's a good trade-off. His life, he dies, and Nineveh gets wiped out. By the way, even the men on the ship came to the Lord because of Jonah. So God was even using that as a... They came to fear the Lord. I don't know that they actually were converted, but you see the name of God was made known as powerful there. So anyway, then Jonah gets thrown into the sea, but of course the Lord won't let him get away. He fishes him out of the sea, so to speak. Um, And in the belly of the fish, he cries out and declares that salvation is of the Lord. Well, then he gets spit out on the shore, and now he goes obediently to Nineveh, and he preaches that destruction will come upon the city in 40 days. Well, the people repent, and the king appoints a fast of repentance, and then what does Jonah do? Well, he goes out of the city to the east, and he gets up on the side of the hill to get a good view to see what would become of the city. I mean, perhaps he's thinking that their repentance might not quite come up to Puritan standards, um, and that God might yet destroy the city. But of course, this doesn't happen. God relents, and the city is spared. And Jonah is furious. Jonah 4.1 says, But it displeased Jonah exceedingly, and he was angry. And so what does he say to the Lord? Who can read this for us? It's next. Oksana? Okay, so he says, God, I knew you'd do this. I knew you'd show mercy and spare the people. And his language is very telling here. It's almost a direct quote from Exodus 34, 6 and 7, where God declared his name and his attributes to Moses after Moses had pled with God not to destroy his people, Israel, for their idolatry. Jonah knew well the mercy of the Lord to his people, Israel, And that was all well and good, but the last thing he wanted was for that same mercy to be shown to Nineveh, and he declares several times that he's angry enough to die over it. Why? Because the Assyrians had been a scourge against Israel, and now they had been spared, and one day these troops would come marching out of Nineveh and would destroy Israel and scatter them, and this all because God had shown them mercy. But you see, God is blessing Nineveh in the context of judging Israel. Nineveh is being raised up to destroy Israel. But God not only blesses the nations in Israel's judgment, in his mercy, he also blesses Israel. So, is God's choosing of Israel in vain? Did he raise up this people only to destroy them? Are they just to be left to the Assyrians and to the Babylonians to be defeated and scattered among the nations and to have their treasures ransacked and Jerusalem trampled and destroyed? Is that the whole answer? Is that the end of it? Is that the final word? Of course, the prophets made very clear that this can't be. It can't be, first of all, because God is sovereign and his purposes cannot fail and because God is gracious His purpose of mercy cannot fail. And so we read in Hosea that in the midst of pronouncing the judgment and rejection of Israel, the Lord cries out, O Ephraim, how can I give you up? We're told in Isaiah 10 that God will bring judgment down upon proud Assyria, whom he had used to judge Israel. So the nations are used for the purposes of God with his people, but then God will turn and judge the nations for their evil, and through this he will bring about great deliverances to Israel. And we read about these in Isaiah 10 and Isaiah 14 and really all throughout the prophets. So God will judge the nations and he will deliver his people. So this is not the end for Israel. Specifically, this is not the end for two reasons. First, Because there is a remnant 
that is, the judgment is not total. God will save a remnant. And second, the judgment is not final because God brings the great renewal. Apart from the pronouncements of judgment, these two ideas, remnant and renewal, are the great messages of the prophets. There will be a surviving remnant. Now, according to Amos 3 and 4, the remnant will be very small, like a few embers burning on a fire after it's been put out, or like a shepherd might recover after a lion has devoured its prey. He tells us he may find an ear here, a leg there. So the remnant is depicted as being very small. But also, this idea of a remnant stresses the idea that God chooses individuals, not just the nation. And with this, we get the doctrine that not all are Israel who are of Israel. There is an elect people within the elect people. There are also... There, there, there are those who are the true people of God in the midst of the false. There are those whose name is written in the book of life, Isaiah 4.3 tells us. And then Isaiah 8, the idea of the remnant is seen as Isaiah has his disciples around him, eager and listening to hear the word of the Lord. But the remnant comes to view most powerfully for us in the prophets in connection with the individual servant of the Lord. In Isaiah 49, he is both identified with Israel and distinguished from the nation. And he's also distinguished from the remnant, as the remnants are to be redeemed and saved through him. Lucy, can you read for us Isaiah 49, 4, 5? 5, 6. Okay, thank you. So he will restore the preserved of Israel, the remnant, but that is not enough. He says he will also be a light to the Gentiles, to the nations. The very thing that Israel was called to be but failed, the servant of the Lord will be to the end that my salvation may reach to the ends of the earth. So the remnant will be preserved and there will be a great renewal that is promised with wonderful blessings in view. In Isaiah 11, we get the picture of the house of David as a stump of a mighty tree that had been cut down. And from this stump comes a shoot, a righteous branch that will bear fruit. And the Spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him, it says, and he will be a sign, a banner to the nations for all the peoples to come to him. Isaiah has been called God's son, and now God's true and only son must appear, the one who is the son of the woman, Genesis 3, who is the seed of Abraham, who is the son of promise, who is the son of David, who would fulfill the calling of Israel and so confirm the promises to the patriarchs that the Gentiles might glorify God for his mercy, Romans 15, 8 and 9. So there's a remnant and a renewal promised. <clears throat> the renewal focuses on the Messiah who will restore the remnant and be a light to the Gentiles. And the remnants of the nations will be gathered in with him. As the prophets show, the nations come streaming in to share in the blessings of the Lord. Isaiah 2 and Micah 2. Isaiah 45, verses 20 to 23. We see not only the remnants of Israel, but also the remnants of the nations coming to the salvation of the Lord. In Isaiah 19, 19 to 25, the great enemies of Israel, Egypt and Assyria, are seen worshiping Yahweh together. And Egypt is called Ami, my people. And Assyria is called the work of my hands. And Israel is there with them in their midst, called my inheritance. Psalm 87 declares that all the nations, even the great enemies of Israel, Babylon, Philistia, Tyre, and others, would be called the Lord's people and numbered with those who were born in Zion. So how will all these blessings come to pass? All these magnificent promises could only come to pass by the hand of the Lord. The situation 
is just too desperate for any human help. And the promises are too great. In the pre-exilic prophets, the remnant was depicted as very small. And initially it was. But it's interesting, as things got worse for Israel, and the judgment came down in full force, the promises of restoration and renewal got increasingly bright and more hopeful and vast. The remnant expanded to encompass not only Israel, but all nations. And the renewal included not just the land of Israel, but a new heavens and a new earth in Isaiah 65. If Israel never dreamed that it could get as dark as it did, neither did they dream that it could get so bright. So if this was to be, it must be accomplished by the Lord. And Isaiah 59, verse 1 says, His hand is not too short to save. And in verses 16 to 17, He saw that there was no man to intercede. Then His own arm worked salvation for Him, and His righteousness upheld Him. The divine warrior would come wearing His breastplate of righteousness and the helmet of His salvation. And as the shepherds of Israel had failed, Ezekiel 34, God himself would come to be their shepherd. Isaiah 42, 6 and 7 tells us that he himself will be the covenant. He will be both its promise and fulfillment. Uh, It says here in verses 6 to 7, I am the Lord, I have called you, In righteousness, I will take you by the hand and keep you. I will give you as a covenant for the people, a light for the nations, to open the eyes that are blind, to bring out the prisoners from the dungeon, from prison, those who sit in darkness. See, as the faithful servant of the Lord fulfills his calling through his perfect obedience and redemptive suffering, he establishes the new covenant. And in that new covenant, the hearts of his people are circumcised to walk in obedience and all in the covenant know the Lord. So the Lord will come and establish this unbreakable covenant in which Jew and Gentile are one. Now we leave off here with these many prophecies from the time of the exile, and the next several hundred years see the people of God still awaiting the promise of this coming Messiah. And what we see centuries later when Herod the Idumean is king in Israel, is that the people of God are in a pitiful condition. The kingdom is in shambles. The northern tribes had been devastated by the Assyrians. Judah had been laid waste by the Babylonians. Gentile king after Gentile king ruled over them. They had been returned to the land under the gracious decree of Cyrus the Persian, after which they found themselves ruled by the Greek Seleucids, the Ptolemies, and the Seleucids again. Then after a brief period of independence, the heavy boot of Rome was on their neck, and the puppet king in Jerusalem was a despised Idumean, the descendant of the hated Edomites, the wicked, murderous Herod. The rulers among the Jews were self-serving hypocrites, the religion was corrupt and empty, and the people were like sheep without a shepherd. There were self-styled messiahs seeking to liberate the nation from Roman oppression, while the priests were willing to cooperate with the oppressors to gain their share of power. And there were a few, a small remnant, who were faithfully awaiting the consolation of Israel. And it was to this situation that Jesus came. It was to this troubled, divided, confused house that Christ preached repentance. It was to this beleaguered, harassed, helpless people that the Lord himself brought the hope of restoration. Not the restoration of their misguided hopes and political designs, but of the hopes shared by the patriarchs of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, of Moses, and of the prophets. It was to this weak, misguided people, this kingdom in ruins, that Jesus came, and he came to raise up we're told, the fallen tent of David. He came to build his church. He came to the house of Israel to seek and save the lost, to call out the remnant of his people, and to build his new covenant church. And so next week's study is going to pick up on that theme, the church of Christ. So let us, let's pray.
our merciful Father in heaven, we are left in awe of your works and of your ways, of your holiness and of your grace. Truly, your paths are beyond tracing out and to you deserves to you belongs all glory and majesty and dominion. May your glory be known in your people, in your church. May you be glorified in the church and in Christ. And may you use us, Father, to proclaim that glory as we ought, as you deserve, and as the people in darkness need. We pray in Christ's name. Amen.